A Study in Scarlet by Arthur Conan Doyle. Part Two The Country of the Saints. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bob Neufeld. Chapter One On the Great Alkali Plain. In the central portion of the great North American continent there lies an arid and repulsive desert, which for many a long year served as a barrier against the advance of civilization. From the Sierra Nevada to Nebraska, and from the Yellowstone River in the north to the Colorado upon the south, is a region of desolation and silence. Nor is nature always in one mood throughout this grim district. It comprises snow-capped and lofty mountains, and dark and gloomy valleys. There are swift-flowing rivers which dash through jagged canyons, and there are enormous plains, which in winter are white with snow, and in summer are gray with the saline alkali dust. They all preserve, however, the common characteristics of barrenness, inhospitality, and misery. There are no inhabitants of this land of despair. A band of Pawnees or of Blackfeet may occasionally traverse it in order to reach other hunting-grounds, but the hardiest of the braves are glad to lose sight of these awesome plains, and to find themselves once more upon their prairies. The coyote skulks among the scrub, the buzzard flaps heavily through the air, and the clumsy grizzly-bear lumbers through the dark ravines, and picks up such sustenance as it can amongst the rocks. These are the sole dwellers in the wilderness. In the whole world there can be no more dreary view than that from the northern slope of the Sierra Blanco. As far as the eye can reach stretches the great flat plainland, all dusted over with patches of alkali, and intersected by clumps of the dwarfish chaparral bushes. On the extreme verge of the horizon lie a long chain of mountain peaks, with their rugged summits flecked with snow. In this great stretch of country there is no sign of life, nor of anything appertaining to life. There is no bird in the steel-blue heavens, no movement upon the dull grey earth. Above all, there is absolute silence. Listen as one may, there is no shadow of a sound in all that mighty wilderness, nothing but silence, complete and heart-subduing silence. It has been said that there is nothing appertaining to life upon the broad plain. That is hardly true. Looking down from the Sierra Blanco, one sees a pathway traced out across the deserts, which winds away and is lost in the extreme distance. It is rutted with wheels, and trodden down by the feet of many adventurers. Here and there there are scattered white objects which glisten in the sun, and stand out against the dull deposit of alkali. Approach and examine them. They are bones. Some large and coarse, others smaller and more delicate. The former have belonged to oxen, and the latter to men. For fifteen hundred miles one may trace this ghastly caravan route by these scattered remains of those who had fallen by the wayside. Looking down on this very scene, there stood upon the 4th of May, 1847, a solitary traveller. His appearance was such that he might have been the very genius or demon of the region. An observer would have found it difficult to say whether he was nearer to forty or to sixty. 
His face was lean and haggard, and the brown parchment-like skin was drawn tightly over the projecting bones. His long brown hair and beard were all flecked and dashed with white. His eyes were sunken in his head, and burned with an unnatural luster, while the hand which grasped his rifle was hardly more fleshy than that of a skeleton. As he stood, he leaned upon his weapon for support, and yet his tall figure and the massive framework of his bones suggested a wiry and vigorous constitution. His gaunt face, however, and his clothes, which hung so baggily over his shriveled limbs, proclaimed what it was that gave him that senile and decrepit appearance. The man was dying, dying from hunger and from thirst. He had toiled painfully down the ravine and on to this little elevation, in the vain hope of seeing some signs of water. Now the great salt plain stretched before his eyes, and the distant belt of savage mountains, without a sign anywhere of plant or tree, which might indicate the presence of moisture. In all that broad landscape there was no gleam of hope. North and east and west he looked with wild questioning eyes, and then he realized that his wanderings had come to an end, and that there, on that barren crag, he was about to die. Ah, why not here, as well as in a feather-bed twenty years hence, he muttered, as he seated himself in the shelter of a boulder. Before sitting down, he had deposited upon the ground his useless rifle, and also a large bundle tied up in a grey shawl, which he had carried slung over his right shoulder. It appeared to be somewhat too heavy for his strength, for in lowering it it came down on the ground with some little violence. Instantly there broke with the grey parcel a little moaning cry, and from it there protruded a small scared face with very bright brown eyes and two little speckled dimpled fists. "'You've hurt me!' said a childish voice reproachfully. "'Have I, though?' the man answered penitently. I didn't go for to do it. As he spoke, he unwrapped the grey shawl, and extricated a pretty little girl of about five years of age, whose dainty shoes and smart pink frock with its little linen apron all bespoke a mother's care. The child was pale and wan, but her healthy arms and legs showed that she had suffered less than her companion. "'How is it now?' he answered anxiously for she was still rubbing the towsy golden curls which covered the back of her head. "'Kiss it, and make it well,' she said, with perfect gravity, shoving the injured part up to him. "'That's what mother used to do. Where's mother?' "'Mother's gone. I guess you'll see her before long.' "'Gone, huh?' said the little girl. "'Funny. She didn't say good-bye.' She most always did if she was just going over to Auntie's for tea, and now she's been away three days. Say, it's awful dry, ain't it? Ain't there no water, no nothing to eat? No, there ain't nothing, dearie. You'll just need to be patient a while, and then you'll be all right. Put your head up again me like that, and then you'll feel bullier. It ain't easy to talk when your lips is like leather, but 
I guess I'd best let you know how the cards lie. What's that you got? Pretty things, fine things, cried the little girl enthusiastically, holding up two glittering fragments of mica. When we goes back to home, I'll give them to Brother Bob. You'll see prettier things than them soon, said the man confidently. You just wait a bit. I was going to tell you, though, you remember when we left the river? Oh, yes. Well, we reckoned we'd strike another river soon, do you see? But there was something wrong, compasses or map or something, and it didn't turn up. Water ran out, just except a little drop for the likes of you, and— And, and you couldn't wash yourself interrupted his companion gravely, staring up at his grimy visage. No, nor drink, and Mr. Bender, he was the first to go, and then Indian Pete, and then Mrs. McGregor, and then Johnny Hounds, and then, dearie, your mother. Then mother's a debtor, too, cried the little girl, dropping her face in her pinafore and sobbing bitterly. Yes. They all went, except you and me. Then I thought there was some chance of water in this direction, so I heaved you over my shoulder and we tramped it together. It don't seem as though we've improved matters. There's an almighty small chance for us now. Do you mean that we're going to die, too? asked the child, checking her sobs and raising her tear-stained face. I guess that's about the size of it. Why didn't you say so before? she said, laughing gleefully. You gave me such a fright. Why, of course, now, as long as we die, we'll be with mother again. Yes, you will, dearie. And you, too. I'll tell her how awful good you've been. I'll bet she meets us at the door of heaven with a big pitcher of water and a lot of buckwheat cakes, hot and toasted on both sides, like Bob and me was fond of. How long will it be first? I don't know. Not very long. The man's eyes were fixed upon the northern horizon. In the blue vault of the heaven there had appeared three little specks which increased in size every moment so rapidly did they approach. They speedily resolved themselves into three large brown birds, which circled over the heads of the two wanderers, and then settled upon some rocks which overlooked them. They were buzzards, the vultures of the west, whose coming is the forerunner of death. "'Cocks and hens!' cried the little girl gleefully, pointing at their ill-omened forms, and clapping her hands to make them rise. "'Say, did God make this country?' "'Of course he did,' said her companion, rather startled by this unexpected question. "'He made the country down in Illinois, and he made the Missouri,' the little girl continued. "'I guess somebody else made the country in these parts. It's not nearly so well done. They forgot the water and the trees.' "'What would you think of offering up prayer?' the man asked diffidently. It ain't night yet, she answered. It don't matter. It ain't quite regular, but he won't mind that, you bet. You say over them ones that you used to say every night in the wagon when we was on the plains. 
why don't you say some yourself the child asked with wondering eyes uh, i disremember them he answered i ain't said none since i was half the height of that gun i guess it's never too late you say them out and i'll stand by and come in on the courses then you'll need to kneel down and me too she said laying the shawl out for that purpose you've got to put your hands up like this it makes you feel kind of good it was a strange sight had there been anything but the buzzards to see it side by side on the narrow shawl knelt the two wanderers the little prattling child and the reckless hardened adventurer her chubby face and his haggard angular visage were both turned up to the cloudless heaven in heartfelt entreaty to that dread being with whom they were face to face while the two voices one thin and clear the other deep and harsh united in the entreaty for mercy and forgiveness the prayer finished they resumed their seat in the shadow of the boulder until the child fell asleep nestling upon the broad breast of her protector he watched over her slumber for some time but nature proved to be too strong for him for three days and three nights he had allowed himself neither rest nor repose slowly the eyelids drooped over the tired eyes and the head sunk lower and lower upon the breast until the man's grizzled beard was mixed with the gold tresses of his companion and both slept the same deep and dreamless slumber had the wanderer remained awake for another half-hour a strange sight would have met his eyes far away on the extreme verge of the alkali plain there rose up a little spray of dust very slight at first and hardly to be distinguished from the mists of the distance but gradually growing higher and broader until it formed a solid well-defined cloud this cloud continued to increase in size until it became evident that it could only be raised by a great multitude of moving creatures in more fertile spots the observer would have come to the conclusion that one of those great herds of bisons which graze upon the prairie land was approaching him this was obviously impossible in these arid wilds as the whirl of dust drew nearer to the solitary bluff upon which the two castaways were reposing the canvas-covered tilts of wagons and the figures of armed horsemen began to show up through the haze and the apparition revealed itself as being a great caravan upon its journey for the west but what a caravan when the head of it had reached the base of the mountains the rear was not yet visible on the horizon right across the enormous plain stretched the straggling array wagons and carts men on horseback men on foot innumerable women who staggered along under burdens and children who toddled beside the wagons or peeped out from under the white coverings this was evidently no ordinary party of immigrants but rather some nomad people who had been compelled from stress of circumstances to seek themselves a new country there rose through the clear air a confused clattering and rumbling from this great mass of humanity with the creaking of wheels and the neighing of horses loud as it was it was not sufficient to rouse the two tired wayfarers above them at the head of the column there rode a score or more of grave iron-faced men clad in sombre homespun garments and armed with rifles on reaching the base of the bluff they halted 
and held a short council among themselves. "'The wells are to the right, my brothers,' said one, a hard-lipped, clean-shaven man with grisly hair. "'To the right of the Sierra Blanco, so we shall reach the Rio Grande,' said another. "'Fear not for water,' cried a third. "'He who could draw it from the rocks will not abandon his own chosen people.' "'Amen, amen,' responded the whole party. They were about to resume their journey, when one of the youngest and keenest-eyed uttered an exclamation, and pointed up to the ragged crag above them. From its summit there fluttered a little wisp of pink, showing up hard and bright against the grey rocks behind. At the sight there was a general reining up of horses and unslinging of guns, while fresh horsemen came galloping up to reinforce the vanguard. The word Redskins was on every lip. "'There can't be any number of Injuns here,' said the elderly man, who appeared to be in command. "'We have passed the Pawnees, and there are no other tribes until we cross the great mountains. "'Shall I go forward and see, Brother Stangerson?' asked one of the band. "'And I, and I!' cried a dozen voices. "'Leave your horses below, and we will await you here,' the elder answered. "'In a moment,' The young fellows had dismounted, fastened their horses, and were ascending the precipitous slope which led up to the object which had excited their curiosity. They advanced rapidly and noiselessly, with the confidence and dexterity of practised scouts. The watchers from the plain below could see them flit from rock to rock until their figures stood out against the skyline. The young man who had first given the alarm was leading them. Suddenly, his followers saw him throw up his hands, as though overcome with astonishment, and on joining him they were affected in the same way by the sight which met their eyes. On the little plateau which crowned the barren hill there stood a single giant boulder, and against this boulder there lay a tall man, long-bearded and hard-featured, but of an excessive thinness. His placid face and regular breathing showed that he was fast asleep. Beside him lay a little child, with her round white arms encircling his brown sinewy neck, and her golden-haired head resting upon the breast of his velveteen tunic. Her rosy lips were parted, showing the regular line of snow-white teeth within, and a playful smile played over her infantile features. Her plump little white legs, terminating in white socks and neat shoes with shining buckles, offered a strange contrast to the long, shriveled members of her companion. On the ledge of rock above this strange couple there stood three solemn buzzards, who, at the sight of the newcomers, uttered raucous screams of disappointment, and flapped sullenly away. Cries of the foul birds awoke the two sleepers, who stared about them in bewilderment. The man staggered to his feet and looked down upon the plain which had been so desolate when sleep had overtaken him, and which was now traversed by this enormous body of men and of beasts. His face assumed an expression of incredulity as he gazed, and he passed his bony hand over his eyes. "'This is what they call delirium, I guess,' he muttered. The child stood beside him, holding on to the skirt of his coat, and said nothing but looked all around her with the wondering, questioning gaze of childhood. The rescuing party was speedily able to convince the two castaways that their appearance was no delusion. 
one of them seized the little girl and hoisted her upon his shoulder while two others supported her gaunt companion and assisted him towards the wagons my name is john ferrier the wanderer explained me and that little one are all that's left of twenty-one people the rest is all dead of thirst and hunger away down in the south is she your child asked someone i guess she is now the other cried defiantly she's mine because i saved her no man will take her from me she's lucy ferrier from miss day on who are you though he continued glancing with curiosity at his stalwart sunburned rescuers there seems to be a powerful lot of ye nigh upon ten thousand said one of the young men we are the persecuted children of god the chosen of the angel Marona. i never heard tell on him said the wanderer he appears to have chosen a fair crowd of ye do not jest at that which is sacred said the other sternly we are of those who believe in those sacred writings drawn in egyptian letters on plates of beaten gold which were handed unto the holy joseph smith at palmyra we have come from nauvoo in the state of illinois where we had founded our temple we have come to seek a refuge from the violent man and from the godless even though it be the heart of the desert the name of nauvoo evidently recalled recollections to john ferrier i see he said you are the mormons we are the mormons answered his companions with one voice and where are you going we do not know the hand of god is leading us under the person of our prophet you must come before him he shall say what is to be done with you they had reached the base of the hill by this time and were surrounded by crowds of the pilgrims pale-faced meek-looking women strong laughing children and anxious earnest-eyed men many were the cries of astonishment and of commiseration which arose from them when they perceived the youth of one of the strangers and the destitution of the other the escort did not halt however but pushed on followed by a great crowd of mormons until they reached a wagon which was conspicuous for its great size and for the gaudiness and smartness of its appearance six horses were yoked to it whereas the others were furnished with two or at most four apiece beside the driver there sat a man who could not have been more than thirty years of age but whose massive head and resolute expression marked him as a leader he was reading a brown-backed volume but as the crowd approached he laid it aside and listened attentively to an account of the episode then he turned to the two castaways if we take you with us he said in solemn words it can only be as believers in our own creed we shall have no wolves in our fold better far that your bones should bleach in this wilderness than that you should prove to be that little speck of decay which in time corrupts the whole fruit will you come with us on these terms i guess i'll come with you on any terms said ferrier with such emphasis that the grave elders could not restrain a smile the leader alone retained his stern impressive expression take him brother stangerson he said give him food and drink and the child likewise let it be your task also to teach him our holy creed we have delayed long enough forward 
on on to zion on on to zion cried the crowd of mormons and the words rippled down the long caravan passing from mouth to mouth until they died away in a dull murmur in the far distance with a cracking of whips and a creaking of wheels the great wagons got into motion and soon the whole caravan was winding along once more the elder to whose care the two waifs had been committed led them to his wagon where a meal was already awaiting them you shall remain here he said in a few days you will have recovered from your fatigues in the meantime remember that now and forever you are of our religion brigham young has said it and he has spoken with the voice of joseph smith which is the voice of god chapter two the flower of utah this is not the place to commemorate the trials and privations endured by the immigrant mormons before they came to their final haven from the shores of the mississippi to the western slopes of the rocky mountains they had struggled on with a constancy almost unparalleled in history the savage man and the savage beast hunger thirst fatigue and disease every impediment which nature could place in the way had all been overcome with anglo-saxon tenacity yet the long journey and the accumulated terrors had shaken the hearts of the stoutest among them there was not one who did not sink upon his knees in heartfelt prayer when they saw the broad valley of utah bathed in the sunlight beneath them and learned from the lips of their leader that this was the promised land and that these virgin acres were to be theirs for evermore young speedily proved himself to be a skilful administrator as well as a resolute chief maps were drawn and charts prepared in which the future city was sketched out all around farms were apportioned and allotted in proportion to the standing of each individual the tradesman was put to his trade and the artisan to his calling in the town streets and squares sprang up as if by magic in the country there was draining and hedging planting and clearing until the next summer saw the whole county golden with the wheat crop everything prospered in the strange settlement above all the great temple which they had erected in the centre of the city grew ever taller and larger from the first blush of dawn until the closing of the twilight the clatter of the hammer and the rasp of the saw was never absent from the monument which the immigrants erected to him who had led them safe through many dangers the two castaways john ferrier and the little girl who had shared his fortunes and had been adopted as his daughter accompanied the mormons to the end of their great pilgrimage little lucy ferrier was borne along pleasantly enough in elder stangerson's wagon a retreat which she shared with the mormon's three wives and with his son a headstrong forward boy of twelve having rallied with the elasticity of childhood from the shock caused by her mother's death she soon became a pet with the women and reconciled herself to this new life in her moving canvas-covered home in the meantime ferrier having recovered from his privations distinguished himself as a useful guide and an indefatigable hunter so rapidly did he gain the esteem of his new companions that when they reached the end of their wanderings it was unanimously agreed that he should be provided with as large and as fertile a tract of land as any of the settlers with the exception of young himself 
and of Stangerson, Campbell, Johnston, and Drebber, who were the four principal elders. On the farm thus acquired, John Ferrier built himself a substantial log-house, which received so many additions in succeeding years that it grew into a roomy villa. He was a man of a practical turn of mind, keen in his dealings and skilful with his hands. His iron constitution enabled him to work morning and evening at improving and tilling his lands. Hence it came about that his farm and all that belonged to him prospered exceedingly. In three years he was better off than his neighbors, in six he was well-to-do, in nine he was rich, and in twelve there were not half a dozen men in the whole of Salt Lake City who could compare with him. From the great inland sea to the distant Wasatch Mountains there was no name better known than that of John Ferrier. There was one way, and only one, in which he offended the susceptibilities of his co-religionists. No argument or persuasion could ever induce him to set up a female establishment after the manner of his companions. He never gave reasons for this persistent refusal, but contented himself by resolutely and inflexibly adhering to his determination. There were some who accused him of lukewarmness in his adopted religion and others who put it down to greed of wealth and reluctance to incur expense others again spoke of some early love affair and of a fair-haired girl who had pined away on the shores of the atlantic whatever the reason ferrier remained strictly celibate in every other respect he conformed to the religion of the young settlement and gained the name of being an orthodox and straight-walking man Lucy Ferrier grew up within the log-house, and assisted her adopted father in all his undertakings. The keen air of the mountains and the balsamic odor of the pine-trees took the place of nurse and mother to the young girl. As year succeeded to year, she grew taller and stronger, her cheek more ruddy, and her step more elastic. Many a wayfarer upon the high road which ran by Ferrier's farm felt long-forgotten thoughts revive in their mind as they watched her lithe girlish figure tripping through the weed-fields, or met her mounted upon her father's mustang, and managing it with all the ease and grace of a true child of the West. So the bud blossomed into a flower, and the year which saw her father the richest of the farmers left her as fair a specimen of American girlhood as could be found in the whole Pacific Slope. It was not the father, however, who first discovered that the child had developed into the woman. It seldom is in such cases. That mysterious change is too subtle and too gradual to be measured by dates. Least of all does the maiden herself know it, until the tone of a voice or the touch of a hand sets her heart thrilling within her, and she learns, with a mixture of pride and of fear, that a new and a larger nature has awoken within her. There are few who cannot recall that day, and remember the one little incident which heralded the dawn of a new life. In the case of Lucy Ferrier, the occasion was serious enough in itself, apart from its future influence on her destiny and that of many besides. It was a warm June morning, and the latter-day saints were as busy as bees, whose hive they have chosen for their emblem. In the fields and in the streets rose the same hum of human industry. Down the dusty high roads defiled long streams of heavily laden mules, all heading to the west, for the gold fever had broken out in California, 
and the overland route lay through the city of the elect. There, too, were droves of sheep and bullocks coming in from the outlying pasture-lands, and trains of tired immigrants, men and horses equally weary of their interminable journey. Through all this motley assemblage, threading her way with the skill of an accomplished rider, there galloped Lucy Ferrier, her fair face flushed with the exercise, and her long chestnut hair floating out behind her. She had a commission from her father in the city, and was dashing in as she had done many a time before, with all the fearlessness of youth, thinking only of her task, and how it was to be performed. The travel-stained adventurers gazed after her in astonishment, and even the unemotional Indians, journeying in with their pelts, relaxed their accustomed stoicism, as they marvelled at the beauty of the pale-faced maiden. She had reached the outskirts of the city when she found the road blocked by a great drove of cattle, driven by a half-dozen wild-looking herdsmen from the plains. In her impatience she endeavoured to pass this obstacle by pushing her horse into what appeared to be a gap. Scarcely had she got fairly into it, however, before the beasts closed in behind her, and she found herself completely embedded in the moving stream of fierce-eyed, long-horned bullocks. Accustomed as she was to deal with cattle, she was not alarmed at her situation, but took advantage of every opportunity to urge her horse on in the hopes of pushing her way through the cavalcade. Unfortunately, the horns of one of the creatures, either by accident or design, came in violent contact with the flank of the mustang, and excited it to madness. In an instant it reared up upon its hind legs with a snort of rage and pranced and tossed in a way that would have unseated any but a most skilful rider. The situation was full of peril. Every plunge of the excited horse brought it against the horns again, and goaded it to fresh madness. It was all that the girl could do to keep herself in the saddle, yet a slip would mean a terrible death under the hoofs of the unwieldy and terrified animals. Unaccustomed to sudden emergencies, her head began to swim, and her grip upon the bridle to relax. Choked by the rising cloud of dust, and by the steam from the struggling creatures, she might have abandoned her efforts in despair, but for a kindly voice at her elbow, which assured her of assistance. At the same moment a sinewy brown hand caught the frightened horse by the curb, and forcing a way through the drove, soon brought her to the outskirts. "'You're not hurt, I hope, miss,' said her preserver respectfully. She looked up at his dark, fierce face, and laughed saucily. "'I'm awfully frightened,' she said naively. "'Whoever would have thought that Pancho would have been so scared by a lot of cows?' "'Thank God you kept your seat,' the other said earnestly. He was a tall, savage-looking young fellow, mounted on a powerful roan horse, and clad in the rough dress of a hunter with a long rifle slung over his shoulders. "'I guess you are the daughter of John Ferrier,' he remarked. "'I saw you ride down from his house. When you see him, ask him if he remembers the Jefferson hopes of St. Louis. If he's the same Ferrier, my father and he were pretty thick.' "'Hadn't you better come and ask yourself?' she asked demurely. The young fellow seemed pleased at the suggestion, and his dark eyes sparkled with pleasure. "'I'll do so,' he said. 
Uh, we've been in the mountains for two months, and are not over and above in visiting condition. He must take us as he finds us. He has a good deal to thank you for, and so have I, she answered. He's awfully fond of me. If those cows had jumped on me, he'd never got over it. Neither would I, said her companion. You? Well, I don't see that it would make much matter to you, anyhow. You ain't even a friend of ours. The young hunter's dark face grew so gloomy over this remark that Lucy Ferrier laughed out loud. "'I didn't mean that,' she said. "'Of course you are a friend now. You must come and see us. Now I must push along, or father won't trust me with his business any more. Good-bye.' "'Good-bye,' he answered, raising his broad sombrero and bending over her little hand. She wheeled her mustang round, gave it a cut with her riding-whip, and darted away down the broad road in a rolling cloud of dust. Young Jefferson Hope rode on with his companions, gloomy and taciturn. He and they had been among the Nevada mountains prospecting for silver, and were returning to Salt Lake City in the hope of raising capital enough to work some loads which they had discovered. He had been as keen as any of them upon the business, until this sudden incident had drawn his thoughts into another channel. The sight of the fair young girl, as frank and wholesome as the Sierra breezes, had stirred his volcanic, untamed heart to its very depths. When she had vanished from his sight, he realized that a crisis had come in his life, and that neither silver speculations nor any other questions could ever be of such importance to him as this new and all-absorbing one. The love which had sprung up in his heart was not the sudden changeable fancy of a boy, but rather the wild fierce passion of a man of strong will and imperious temper. He had been accustomed to succeed in all that he undertook. He swore in his heart that he would not fail in this if human effort and human perseverance could render him successful. He called on John Ferrier that night, and many times again until his face was a familiar one at the farmhouse. John, cooped up in the valley and absorbed in his work, had had little chance of learning the news of the outside world during the last twelve years. All this Jefferson Hope was able to tell him, and in a style which interested Lucy as well as her father. He had been a pioneer in California, and could narrate many a strange tale of fortunes made and fortunes lost, in those wild halcyon days. He had been a scout, too, and a trapper, a silver explorer, and a ranchman. Wherever stirring adventures were to be had, Jefferson Hope had been there in search of them. He soon became a favorite with the old farmer, who spoke eloquently of his virtues. On such occasions Lucy was silent, but her blushing cheek and her bright happy eyes showed only too clearly that her young heart was no longer her own. Her honest father may not have observed these symptoms, but they were assuredly not thrown away upon the man who had won her affections. It was a summer evening when he came galloping down the road and pulled up at the gate. She was at the doorway and came down to meet him. He threw the bridle over the fence and strode up the pathway. "'I am off, Lucy,' he said, taking her two hands in his and gazing tenderly down into her face. I won't ask you to come with me now, but 
will you be ready to come when I am here again? And when will that be? she asked, blushing and laughing. A couple of months at the outside. I will come and claim you then, my darling. There's no one who can stand between us. And how about my father? she asked. He has given his consent, provided we get these minds working all right. I have no fear on that head. Oh, well, of course. If you and father have arranged it all, there's no more to be said, she whispered with her cheek against his broad breast. Thank God, he said, hoarsely, stooping and kissing her. It is settled, then. The longer I stay, the harder it will be to go. They are waiting for me at the canyon. Good-bye, my own darling. Good-bye. Two months you shall see me. He tore himself from her as he spoke, and, flinging himself upon his horse, galloped furiously away, never even looking round, as though afraid that his resolution might fail him if he took one glance at what he was leaving. She stood at the gate, gazing after him until he vanished from her sight. Then she walked back into the house, the happiest girl in all Utah. End of chapter 2